Today's scripture comes from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, we started a journey through the gospel according to, to Luke. And the gospel of Luke teaches us what it means to be a Christian. Who gets to become a Christian? On one hand, you know, Christianity, it's... We're criticized oftentimes as a very exclusive faith because it says that uh, a personal relationship with Jesus, that's the only solution to your sin. That's the only solution to any brokenness in your life. Very exclusive, that kind of truth claim. And yet, on the other hand, Luke focuses a lot on the marginalized, a lot on uh, the poor and the leper and the outcast, uh, to the to people on the moral outskirts of society. And uh, that's really to show us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly inclusive. In fact, it's the most inclusive. Only the gospel of Jesus says anyone can have a relationship with Jesus. Doesn't matter where you studied. Doesn't matter how much you make. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Here, Jesus says, I've preached good news to the poor. Now, You need to understand, that is like a monumental thing that he's saying there. We're going to kind of get into this. What does it mean? There are three things. One, we're going to learn about his message. Secondly, what it means. And lastly, how do you apply it? The message, what it means, the explanation, and then how do you apply it? First, we're going to look at the message. Uh, uh, After this time of temptation, if you were here last week, if you're new or visiting, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. When he came out of the wilderness being tempted by the devil for 40 days, in verse 14, That's where he begins his public ministry, teaching in these synagogues. He was a rabbi. Now, you should know that uh, in those ancient times, while rabbis taught, people stood around the rabbi while uh, the teacher would be seated. 
And, and it would read a, a passage from the Bible in Hebrew, but see, there's a problem. Most of the people uh, in the synagogue, they didn't understand Hebrew. So they had to translate what was in the Hebrew into uh, another uh, Semitic language, Aramaic, and, and then they would hear a sermon. So you would hear it in Hebrew, it would be translated in another language, and then they would have to hear a teaching based on, uh, on what was read. That's what Jesus was supposed to do. And in verses 16 to 20, that's what they came to hear. They were expecting to hear that he came, he read from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2. Uh, these are very, very important verses about a person since the ancient times known as the servant of the Lord. Now, what is that? The servant of the Lord in Isaiah is somebody whom God sends to his people, to the world, who eventually comes when all the brokenness and crime and injustice and oppression uh, and, and just uh, the illness and disease and, and the poverty, uh, looking around at all this, this person's going to come to undo everything that's broken in the world. He's going to just restore justice and restore society to the way that he's a king, essentially, even though he's a servant. God's going to send him. And... and uh, the word shalom, there's a peace that he would restore. That's a, when we think shalom, when we think the word peace, we think, ah, like it's going to be comfortable. That's not what he's talking about. There's a total and full restoration to the way the world was originally created and designed. We're talking about cultural healing, social healing, uh, moral healing. There's going to be a sexual healing, a physical healing, a psychologically, emotionally, in every brokenness Every facet of brokenness in our lives, there will be healing. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, it says this. And uh, it was read uh, very well uh, here. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for, for the captives, for the prisoners, and to release from darkness uh, for the prisoners, the, in Hebrew, that's synonymous with recovery of sight for the blind. To proclaim the year, the year of the Lord's favor and, and a day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. Now think about this. Jesus, he's at the synagogue, and he opens up a scroll in Isaiah, and he reads this passage. He actually, he doesn't finish the passage. He doesn't finish that second verse. He kind of cuts it off. Uh, he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what we just read. And, he, and, and then he, he, he's finished reading. He sits down. That's what happens. And in verse 20, every eye, it says that every eye is fastened on him. Why? Because when you sit, when you're in that posture of sitting down, you're ready to teach. And so they're fastened on him. They're, they're waiting for him to teach. They're waiting for him to preach. And, and here's what's remarkable. Instead of a long lecture, instead of a long sermon, Jesus says in verse 21, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? It's remarkable. What he's saying is, I am the sermon. I am, my presence here is the sermon. I am the one that I, Isaiah, the prophet, in ancient times was referring to. I am the one that Isaiah was looking to, hoping for. So today marks the year of God's favor because I'm here. I'm present. I'm going to restore 
everything that's broken in the world. What's the year of the Lord's favor? In ancient, in ancient Israel, every 50 years in ancient Israel, uh, on the Day of Atonement, they called it the year of Jubilee. It was a year to mimic that restoration. And so it was uh, every seven years, you rested a year. Every seven times seven years, you rested a year. So you have these seven cycles of seven years where you're resting. When I mean resting, it was an agrarian society. They didn't work the land. They didn't do anything. They kind of let the land grow. God was asking his people to let the land heal in a sense. Just as much as we need to heal and to rest, he was saying, let the land heal. You're working that land. I, don't want, I want there to be complete balance and, and restoration, not just for you personally, but for all of creation. But on that 50th year, that extra year, not only are you letting the land rest, but what's happening is now if you're poor, if you're a slave, if you're marginalized, if you're outcast, there was provision for you. You're going to be redeemed. You're going to be set free. If you had a debt, any debt that you held, it would be canceled. You were given a chance to come back in if you were on the outside. And Jesus is saying, my coming marks the beginning of the real jubilee. You need to know through history, there's never been a single recorded, a single recorded instance of Israel ever truly observing that 50th year. You know why? I mean, think about it. When people tell you, look, you need to rest, what do you say? No, I need to build. This is my time. I need to work. I need to get this out. As, as soon as I get this done, then I can rest. You see, I need, to, I need to do this in order to build. I need to do this in order to succeed. And so they never rested. And they never let the ground rest, ever. And yet they're saying, here, we're oppressed. We're poor. In other words, I've been working and working and working. And <laughs> I'm poor. I'm still oppressed. I'm still captive. Jesus says, I've brought jubilee with me. My presence is jubilee. What's the response? Verse 22, oh, they were all amazed. They all spoke well of him. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, some scholars, you might read, some scholars are saying they're looking down on Jesus because Joseph was a really poor man. Uh, but, you know, in that context, they were amazed. They were speaking well of him. It doesn't really quite fit uh, in that context. Other scholars, what they'll tell you is this. They'll say that these people were oppressed and they were waiting for a king. They knew... If those who understood the word of God, they knew that somebody was going to come to release them of their, uh, of their oppression. They were going to save them. And so they were waiting for this Messiah, this king to save them. And Joseph, even though he was poor, he comes from the line of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. But that line was a special line. It was the line of kings. David came from that line. The kings of Israel came from that line. And so Joseph, he's poor, and yet he's, he's a king. And so they hear this message, and they're saying, well, it could be him. It could be him. Why is this important? Because one thing about the gospel accounts, if you've read any of them, uh, people like uh, the ones that you see here in this passage, you know, they come out every week. They come to hear teaching every week. They're the ones who are very consistent uh, they're the ones who serve. They're the ones who give. But they're also constantly missing the point. They're constantly missing the point. They think they get the gospel. They think they get it. Remember, Jesus is preaching good news. He's preaching the gospel to the poor, and these people are poor. And so they're like, oh, he's clearly talking about me. And they're, I've been waiting for a king. I'm somebody to rescue me from this poverty and this, this oppression. I need to be saved. So these people say, oh, it's so nice to finally hear this. What a good, encouraging message. You know, because it's good for them. 
It's encouraging for them. It's uplifting for them. But because of their view of themselves as good people and moral people and right people, because they think they have their doctrine down, and they were so off, but because they thought they had it down. And, and, and uh, uh, they, they missed a point, ultimately. The passage essentially says, you don't get it. You don't get it. Your goodness and, and that oppression that sometimes you've experienced in your life, that's actually a barrier. You can't use that as an excuse. That's an actual barrier to actually getting Jesus. And what does Jesus say? He's looking at them, verse 23. He says, well, surely you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do you hear in your hometown what you did in Capernaum? Show us who you really are. Then in verse 25, it says, you see, there were many widows in Elijah's time. Yet, verse 26, Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And this is the key. Jesus is saying, well, if you say you're poor, so you must be coming for us. You want me to just relieve you from your worldly poverty, then you don't really get me because look at you. Look at how entitled you've become. Look at how deserving you think you are. You think because you come here and, and because, oh, I've experienced, I'm in, I'm in oppression, I, I, I give. You think I'm here for you. That's what you expect. You think I'm here to save you. No. Let me tell you how my salvation works. Just like Elijah, just like Elisha, just like any of the prophets that God has sent in the Old Testament, there were many widows. There are many lepers, many people with skin diseases and that were cast out. But I went to the widow in Zarephath. I went to Naaman, the Syrian. Look at them. Look at their stories. If you understand their stories, then you're going to know. You're going to understand what I mean when I talk about the poor, when I talk about preaching good news to the poor. Because if you don't fall into that category, I'm not preaching to you. I'm talking about who really gets me. This is Jesus. Who Jesus came to save. Verses 28 to 29. What happens? They hear it and they're just incensed. I mean, these people, just moments before, they said, oh, this is this nice. This is really good to hear. When they hear this, they tried to drive Jesus out of the town. They tried to throw him down a cliff. These people, these good, moral synagogue listeners, next thing you know, they don't like what he said. They want to murder this guy. What does it mean? What was he saying? That's the second point. A few things. One, he says, uh, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, that's the good news. That's the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, it can be yours. But the only prerequisite to receiving it, and that's what makes Christianity such an inclusive faith, you have to be poor. You have to be spiritually poor. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You have to be humble. In other words, when Jesus, when he's referencing Elijah going to the widow in Zarephath, she was a widow. She was financially destitute. In ancient times, that means she is broken and lost and cast out. Uh, in the Old Testament book of Ruth, a very short book, it begins with this uh, uh, woman, Naomi. Naomi has lost her husband and her sons. 
So she's got no one. She's alone. It's a bitter tragedy. Why? Because if you lose your husband in those ancient times, you've lost your standing in society. But she also lost her sons. So in ancient times, it's an agrarian society. Uh, that means that you've got no one, uh, no male figure who can work the land. It was hard work. It was hard work. Indeed. There, was, there was no source of income. So you've got no husband. You've got no sons. Naomi is completely destitute. She's outside of every social ring. She doesn't fit into any part of society. It's why later on she goes back to her own hometown. And some of her old friends, she's been away for a long time. She was in this uh, area, a neighboring part of Israel called Moab. And so she goes back to her hometown. And some of her old friends notice her. And they say, isn't this Naomi? The word Naomi means sweet. She says, call me Mara. There's a, it's a play on words. She says, call me Mara. In other words, Mara means bitter. What she's saying is, yes, before when you knew me, my life was sweet. Now I'm bitter. Call me Mara. That widow in Zarephath, she's got nothing. Bitter. But then, so you think, oh, what Jesus means is you need to be like physically poor. You need to be financially poor. You need to give up everything. But then Jesus then references Naaman. Naaman was rich. Naaman had wealth. So Jesus couldn't just be saying, well, you have to be financially poor because Naaman was wealthy. You need to understand both narratives. And if you did, then you'd know both of them were spiritually poor. The widow, she was an outcast. She wasn't even Jewish. She was outside of that geographical, ethnic, cultural ring. She was also an idol worshiper. She was outside of the religious ring. In other words, she had bad theology, bad doctrine. Some of us, we're like that here. I mean, you hear somebody, and they're kind of a little bit doctrine-wise. I mean, we have, this church is filled with people who've come. They've been away from the church for a long time. You're bound to bump into somebody who's still figuring it out, you see? But we tend to kind of push away from people like that. You see? At least the church has been historically known to do that. So, so she's a cultural outcast. She's a religious outcast. And she's financially lost. So now she's a social outcast. She's outside of every ring. But name it, he is wealthy. But he's also a cultural outcast. You see, he's a Syrian. And he worshiped false gods. So he's a religious outcast. And he's a murderer, so, so he's a moral outcast, and he's got leprosy. I mean, this, he can't, it, it just gets worse. He's literally falling apart. In both cases, both people, the widow and Naaman, they knew they were helpless. They knew they were outside. They were on the outside. They were never going to get in, not according to the rules of today's society. And Jesus says, hey, there are lots of widows out there. There are lots of people with disease, hurting. But only that woman got saved. And only that man got saved. Why? People are sitting around. Jesus, they're saying, oh, I came to preach the good news. That's nice. It's for me. You know, Joseph's son. Joseph was poor. I'm poor. I identify with that. You see, you know why? You know why that's easy? Because when you can identify with somebody and, and they kind of brought down to earth, then you can control them in a sense. You have expectations of them. Jesus is saying, it's not for you. Why? Because he knew that for them, Jesus was just a supplement to improve their lives. They weren't desperate for him. Jesus is saying, either you're going to come to me because I'm all you have. I'm all you need. Or you're just coming to me for more things. You're either poor or you're not poor enough. 
Either you see yourself as totally outside of God's ring, justly deserving his wrath in a sense, and and that makes you desperate. Or in the end, you think there's something about you that's a bit more acceptable. Acceptable enough. I'm going to say it like this. Jesus came for the poor. Most people here in this church, they're never going to say, you're never going to hear people say, I'm spiritually wealthy. I'm spiritually rich. I got it together. Most of the people here, they just came back to the church. They've been away for a while. But it's easy to come to church on Sunday. It's easy to get, to get into the cycle of coming to church, going to community groups, serving community, even giving. And yet, you know, you can control those things. Those things you can control. You know, it's based on your will, your ability, your desire. Uh, and if, something, if that encroaches on something that you really want, you can easily just kind of push it out. You can easily dial down things, dial down your involvement in the church, dial down your giving, dial down your presence. You could easily do that. You see, um, the moment, I mean, look at these people in the synagogue. They're worshiping. They're good people, rational, worshiping. They gave. But think about it. That's what they did in the synagogues, just like here. The moment Jesus says or, or does something that they don't like, what happens? If Jesus gets in the way of your life, what happens? If he gets in the way of your career, if he gets in the way of your pursuits or your family, if he gets in the way of that bad season in your life or, or that one relationship that you really, really want, what do we do? Do you listen to the Bible? Do you listen to what older, wiser believers who've been through stuff, what they say? Do you listen to pastors in your life? Do you listen to, do you submit to authority? No, when it's a good season, you see, you know, you love community, you love the wisdom of other Christians, you love the wisdom of your pastors. It's so nice, isn't it? But in a bad season, we treat them as beneath us. We try to drive them out. We distance ourselves. We throw them off a cliff. Why? Why do you think these people tried to drive uh, Jesus out of town? It's the same reason why we drive him out of our lives. Why we drive him out of our comforts. Why we drive him out of our pursuits. We're just using Jesus when we need him, you see. And these aren't bad people, they're good people. But the moment Jesus says something or confounds them or confuses them or doesn't do what they expect, they want to drive him out. They want to kill him. The widow, she wasn't even a Jew. She wasn't Jewish. Naaman, he wasn't Jewish. He was Syrian. And, and Jesus is saying, because you've been in all these years, it's almost like a trap. You're the one who's held captive. That's actually become a barrier. Being in your social circles here, that's like being in sometimes. You came here hungry and thirsting and wanted to grow in faith. That's why you came back, right? And then you start making some friends, and what happens? Oh, it starts to get dull, doesn't it? What happened to that passion and that zeal, that desire? Most of us, we're merely experiencing the experience of people who experience Jesus, and we haven't experienced Jesus ourselves. And we're like a spiritual mess, and that makes you angry and entitled and deserving. Look, over and over, uh, you see this in the Bible. God is pursuing what? The immoral, the outcast, the poor. Why? Because they already know they're out. Why would God love a person like me? Nobody else does. Here's how you know you're a religious person or you're just a religious person. You don't really get Jesus. You look at people in the church. You look at people around you at work. You look at your authority figures, uh, wherever you are, and you're just discontent. 
And you say, you know, but I'm the acceptable one. Do you know who I am? These people, they're not like me. I'm smarter. I make better decisions. I'm quicker on my feet. And you sneer. And you look down. Now, we don't, it's not like, that's a cartoon, right? I mean, that, you do that in your heart. That's what we do. You see, because we like to be civil people in this place. But that's what you really do. And it's because there's this undercurrent of pride, of subterranean undercurrent of pride that kind of, that's kind of like, at the least, you're kind of like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it. But on the other hand, you're like, this isn't really for me. You know, this is for somebody else, this isn't for me. And Jesus is saying, that's one of the most covert ways to rebel against God. To act like God or somebody else, as if like they are, you're so much wiser and, and, and that's why everybody owes you. You're rebelling against God not because you're a bad person, but because you're a good person. You're rebelling against God not because you're a, a foolish person, but actually because you're kind of an intelligent person, you see? You're sensible. And, and when the church or, or your leaders or God does something in your life that you just don't agree with, I mean, we're such fragile people. How do these people react? They, they're violent. They're like spiritual Karens, right? Spiritual Karens. Every time they hear that call to repentance and, and they reject it and they just go against it, you know, it's only it, if your name is Karen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if your name's Karen. Uh, I know that we do have a few Karens in here. Not, you know, we don't have we, people named Karen. I'm, I'm sorry. You know I'm not talking about you, right? You know that. It's an unfortunate thing. I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to use colloquialisms in any, they just kind of come out, so I'm sorry. Um, we don't, really experience joy. You're, you're pushing away joy in your life. You're pushing away life, you see? And it's because the hardest thing to do is when you're in those places is to know that that is you and to actually get on your knees. That's the hardest thing to do. We don't really want Jesus as our king. We don't want him as our Lord. God, God is more like someone you elected in your life. I, I'm giving you a chance. I'm giving you a try. Why? Because in the end, you're still the king of your own life. That's the problem, and you don't see the problem. The problem is you've been king all your life, and it's a mess. You're still oppressed. You're still damaged. You're still hurting. Life is still falling apart around you. But that slightest hint of discomfort and unease, dis-ease, that's disease, makes it violent. That's what it means to be a religious person. That's what it means to, to act spiritually rich. You see, if you're poor, I didn't grow up with a ton of money. You see, if you're poor, you've braved through some, some circumstances. You've been through some tough times. Poverty can, can it, it's, a, it's incredibly tragic, and yet at the same time, uh, it builds a certain type of resilience in you. Uh, you're used to living in desperation. You're used to living with very little. You're used to living with discomfort. It's a norm. Some of us, there are times when, when the times when you were the most humble, the times when you were the most teachable were years ago, probably when you were in college. You know why? Because you didn't have to sacrifice much in college. 
You didn't have to give up much in college. Your future was still way ahead of you, you see? You didn't have much in college. Now, we're kind of pursuing this upper-class life. You've got an education now, you've got degrees. People look up to you, they respect you. You've got a career, it's more than just a job. You've built up a pretty hefty portfolio of accomplishments and, and, and even wealth in your life. You've got a home now, you've got a, there are a lot, lots of things that say, maybe you're fortunate enough even to have a family. Um, and uh, you're basically like, Jesus is kind of, he's getting in the way of a lot of these things. So upper class living, it's made you spiritually upper class too. What's the real prerequisite to salvation? Spiritual poverty, hungry, thirsting, needing, like the widow, like Naaman. First Peter chapter five, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, yeah, maybe you are gifted. Maybe you are a good person, glad. Maybe you've been damaged, hurt by people. Who hasn't in this room? Maybe you gave a lot. Maybe you sacrificed a lot. Maybe you, you really embraced in your workplace or in your home and your church. Those things are really, even in the church, I mean, these things are really, really important to you. But if your posture is deserving, then you are out. Because... It's not the gifted, or the good, or the generous, or the embraced, or even the damaged that get in. It's the ones who say, I'm a mess. And I know it's not about my degrees, it's not about my wealth, it's not about my, what I've built, it's not about my accomplishments or success, it's not about my intelligence or my reputation even, or my goodness, I am empty, I am poor, I've got nothing to offer, Jesus says, they're the ones who get in. That's what this passage is saying. Secondly, what the passage is saying, over and over, when Jesus is juxtaposing uh, people in the Bible, it's usually the rich and the poor. The, socially, uh, the ones who are socially on the inside versus the social outsider. And all the time, every single one of those times when there's a juxtaposition taking place, it's always the poor person or the outsider who gets in. So there's something about being poor. There's something about being on the outside. So today, I mean, if you're financially struggling today, or if you're an outsider today, if you've just been struggling for, to get in, in some way, look, this is not, <laughs> don't misunderstand, this is not a social gospel, this is not about social justice, this is not about liberation theology. Over and over in the Bible, it's the younger son who always trumps the elder son in God's, in God's circle, in his view. It's the outcast woman, not the woman on the inside. It's the poor person, it's the barren person, it's, the, it's they who receive the grace of God. Why? Because God is always challenging. He's always overturning our worldly values to point to himself for salvation. This world, I mean, look, it's really sad to say, even in the church, I mean, the church, and if you look at it from one angle, it's degrading in a certain way. Because the, even in the church, we value education and status. We value the pedigree or the intelligence. We tend to value, and that's why we have a lot of people like that kind of get away with it because the church has kind of not only tolerated it, but embraced it over the years. Not here. I 
Oh, we have people, I mean, your looks, your wealth, your figure, your marital status, I mean, these kind of things are an actual, actually a barrier to really getting or understanding Jesus. And so God in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite power, in his infinite mercy, in his infinite grace, he says, the world has got no room for you if you are, if you are poor, if you are outcast, but I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to show the world that those people, they've pushed me out too. And they're going to push out anybody that doesn't fit into their category. But the poor and the outcasts, those people, those are the ones who are in the best place. They are in the best posture to take me in. And I am everything that you need. I'm all you need. It's why, the God, it's why God is always in the margins in the Old Testament. It's why Jesus is always in the margins in the New Testament. Maybe it's a racial thing. Maybe it's an educational thing. Whatever it is that makes you an outsider. Maybe it's a wealth thing or a pedigree thing or a class thing. I don't know. But one thing that the Bible shows us over and over is that the more out you are, the more primed to understanding and getting the gospel you are. So if you're constantly trying to, to build wealth, that's your pursuit, or you're trying, constantly trying to measure people against your wealth or your abilities or your success or your status, or you're constantly trying to get in, and that's your drive to get into every social circle, you're going the wrong direction, friend. Brother and sister, you're going the wrong direction. Because the gospel teaches us what? If Jesus Christ, if the king himself, the highest king, if he came down to the depths, if he came down to the cross for our sins, then salvation doesn't come by leaning on your wealth and power and status, but by giving up your wealth and power and status. When Jesus reads Isaiah chapter 61, he was supposed to read, he sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our, of our God. In other words, he, he's supposed to end with, the, you know, He's, he's supposed to continue on and recite all of Isaiah 1 and 2 and, sh and, and then teach on that. But instead, he ends with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, period. He leaves out that end verse, the end part of the verse. Why? Because he didn't come to bring vengeance. He came to take it on himself. He didn't come to bring the wrath of God. He came to receive it. He didn't come to, he didn't come uh, uh, to wear a crown of gold. He came to wear a crown of thorns. He didn't come with a sword in his hands. He actually came for nails in his hands. You get what I'm saying? Why? To bring good news to the poor by becoming poor. And so he was poor to free prisoners. Why? So he gets arrested. You see that? To release us from darkness, to recover sight for the blind. Why? So he gets blindfolded. There's darkness as he's hanging on the cross and he's beaten and he's jeered. You see that? And, 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 and it's why darkness has completely enveloped him everywhere. You see that? Victory through defeat. Salvation through brokenness. The gospel is completely upside down and should overturn all of our values. Is it overturning your values? Jesus goes to the brokenhearted and the powerless and the captives, the weak, the blind. So you need to come brokenhearted and powerless and captive and weak and say, you're right, I just don't see. I don't get it. Surrender. That's what it means to be spiritually poor. And God's love and God's approval will be so sufficient for you, so powerful 
Let it end your pride. And you will be transformed. You're going to be a new person. So new, they call it the new birth. They call it being born again. Who is the most primed to get that first? It's the poor. It's the outcast. Poor people recognize that wealth is more than just about working hard. A lot of people work hard, they never get rich. Poor folks, they recognize that there is always some measure of grace that goes beyond your abilities, that goes beyond your, your, you know, your, your education or your, your work ethic. They know that there's some measure of grace there. Rich people, you know, Titanic, quoted this before, uh, you know, Billy Zane's character, a real man makes his own luck. Poor people know that's not true. They know that. The people who are on the outside are more primed to getting and understanding grace, the grace of God, than the people who are on the inside. Well, how do you apply this? He said, isn't this Joseph's son? Why is that important? Joseph, he came from the line of Judah. He came from the line of kings. But he was poor. So he's a descendant of the kings, and yet he was humble. Does that remind you of anybody? My favorite hymn. How about he left his father's throne above? So free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Joseph came from kings, but he was very poor. He was super poor, very low status. Jesus, he didn't come to the world on a throne, even though he was a king. He came to the world in a manger. Lots of mangers in the world, not a lot of thrones. Jesus comes in a manger. The king came down. When he came down, he came all the way down. The son of God became the son of Joseph. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Why? For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who for your sakes became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You know what that means? Jesus Christ, he sacrificed it all. He gave it all up. He gave up his wealth. He gave up his status. He gave up his sonship. His, that's the ultimate status. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, his letter to the Philippians, he says this, Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of the servant. So, and Jesus was the ultimate servant. He was the servant of the Lord. So one application is you need to surrender. You need to empty yourself. The high king said, this is how victory happens. I don't know anybody here who doesn't want to be a winner. Jesus said, you're doing it upside down. You do it on your knees. You do it in surrender. Oh, we're so tight-fisted with our wealth, aren't we? We need to be more generous. We're going to be preaching a whole month of ser- uh, series on giving soon as we enter into a month of giving, right? I mean, we're entering into a season of giving soon. Uh, you need to surrender your status. There are people around you every day in the church, outside of the church, that are outcast. The thing about being outcast, I mean, anybody who's gone to middle school understands that when you start to befriend people who are outcast, it's like a disease. You you start to inherit their outcastness. It's It's like a disease. That's why we don't do it. But if you understand the gospel, you who are wealthy, you who are in, to be able to say, because of the gospel, I'm willing to let go or surrender This is all, my being in is also part of the grace of God in my life. I'm going to extend it to somebody else who's outside. That means you can love the person next to you. You can love people who are very different from you. You can love people who are very difficult to love. 
Because the gospel gives you something, the gospel affords something so rich and so powerful and so esteeming and so brilliant and so wise that your wealth and your status and your career and your relationships, your education, these things no longer define you. And so you can identify with others who are more poor. In the Old Testament, you have the book of Esther. Esther was a queen, beautiful queen. And yet she starts to place herself into the position, the posture of identifying with a broken and just outcast people. That's what happens when the gospel gets in. You become a servant. Why? Because, because these things no longer define you. They used to define you. They no longer define you. You start to identify with poverty. You start to identify more with the poor. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying forsake your responsibility, forsake your family, forsake your financial commitments, but maybe you need to make new commitments. Maybe you need to change your lifestyle. And by the way, that's the biggest barrier. One of the biggest barriers to generosity is people don't want to change their lifestyle. They want to have both, see? So that's why they end up, you know, what do you think is going to get crowded out? Jesus gets crowded out, essentially. They don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want it to affect their status. They worked really hard for this. You know, well, you see, I'm still generous with a lot of other things, my time, my resources, I serve a lot. Look, if you're generous in every way, except with your wealth, that's a sign of how much wealth has a grip on you. See that? Because if you're a sinner saved by the grace of God through Jesus, you stop identifying yourself with your wealth or with your success because you were poor. You understand what it means to be poor. You owe a sin debt that no one can pay, not even yourself, ever. But one person could pay. And so in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. In other words, Jesus Christ, the high king, left his eternal home, and he came to earth, and he became homeless. He became poor, born in a manger, grew up poor, without status, totally homeless in his ministry, and on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I've lost my eternal home. Before the spirit of the sovereign Lord was on me, in fact, this passage starts in verse 14, with he, was, he entered in with the power of the spirit. Now he's saying the spirit of the sovereign Lord has departed from me. And so I'm desperate and I'm helpless and, and I'm humble. The most humble person that's ever lived. And yet, no one's gonna save him. There's no good news for him. This is the ultimate day of atonement, the ultimate day of sacrifice for his people's sins. Jesus is saying, I am the ultimate jubilee. Uh, because of me, everyone's going to get set free. You can get set free if you know him. And yet, he says, because I'm taking on the people's debt, I'm taking on their burden, I'm taking on their desperation, so they may go free. I am their provision. Jubilee. But, I've lost a father, and so I'm bankrupt, and I'm hungry. He says, I thirst. I'm thirsty. 
I need, I'm brokenhearted. The Father has left me. And he was nailed to the cross. He's been captive. He's been enslaved. He's lost the favor of God. The wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus on the cross as a penalty for our sins. He's receiving the full force of the vengeance of God. For us, it's, it's a day of the Lord's favor. For Jesus, it became the day of the Lord's vengeance. You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ, he became the ultimate widow. He lost the Father. He lost his love. On the cross, he became the ultimate Naaman. He became a spiritual leper, outcast, by the way, you know. He was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem. He was kicked out of the city. He was literally driven out of the town. That was his love for his people. And so Jesus Christ was hungry. He just, he went hungry and thirsty. Why? So that you could be filled. That's his love. Jesus Christ was utterly broken on the cross. Why? So we can be healed and we could be made whole. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate poverty. He lost the Father. He lost his God so that we could experience the fullest richness of being called God's sons. That is the extent of God's love for you. And when he cries out, it is finished. Remember, he's being thrown off the cliff of God's grace. And he goes all the way down to the depths, complete separation from God. So that heaven, the kingdom of heaven could be ours. So when he says, it is finished on the cross, that's a financial term. That's a transactional term, meaning that sin debt, your debt, has been paid in full. And he says it's over. And then he dies. He ended our spiritual poverty. Now I have to apologize. Uh, We're at the end. I had a bunch of application. It's written here, but you're not going to hear it. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know we, maybe another day I'll lay it out for you. Look, I'll, I'll say a couple things. I mean, stop using, stop hiding behind your goodness and, and your status and your wealth to convince yourself that you're better or you're okay. See? Uh, or like Naaman Stop obeying the old false gods. Move towards Jesus. That's the end of smugness. That's the end of snobbishness. It's the end of pride. It's also the end of anxiety. You know, I wish I could go into that. Secondly, um, secondly, this is the end of rationalizing your wealth. You know, you know what Naaman did when he, when he got healed? The first thing he did was he offered a large gift. He understood the salvation that he received. It overturned his values. Um, Thirdly, uh, look, maybe some of you don't struggle with wealth or success, but you've got other barriers to faith. What are they? Jesus says, you're held captive. But I'm Jubilee. I've come to remove these barriers in your life. So go to him humbly. That's what this whole passage is about. Go to him humbly and say, I need help. I need you. Only you. Now, some of you, you hear this and you're saying, well, that was nice. The gospel doesn't offend you. It probably should offend you. So what I want you to say, what I want you to think is, I want you to reconsider what Jesus is saying here over and over and over about what it takes to get him. 
In the end, everyone here, God is calling everyone to either crown him or crucify him. Let's pray.